Hey guys, thanks for joining me. Um, this episode was recorded quite a while back, so my apologies to my guest, and my apologies to a lot of my upcoming guests. Some of these have been banked for a while. Um, but this was with Patrick Verone. Uh, he's written for The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, The Critic, Muppets Tonight, uh, Futurama, a lot of Futurama, so many things. Uh, and uh, he was kind enough to sit down with me, talk about uh, the Woody Allen album that is uh, stand-up comic, and uh, is also the same as Nightclub Years. They're basically the Nightclub Years and Stand Up Comic are essentially the same compilation uh, with very few changes. So that's why you're not going to hear any clips in this. Uh, we did talk about it previously with uh, good old Jeremy. And, uh, but this is, this is a lot of fun. And uh, we talk about uh, just a lot of things. His years at Harvard, working on the Lampoon, um, a lot of Futurama, of course. And uh, this, this episode was actually we recorded it a week before they announced. Uh, that Futurama was not coming back, which obviously sucks for anybody who likes comedy. And, uh, you know, hopes for a new home, uh, obviously, because it's a great show. Thanks so much for listening. Enjoy Patrick Verone. Hey, everybody. Thank you for joining us. This week, I have Patrick Verone with me. Hello. Thank you so much for being here. My pleasure, Jason. Now, you wanted to talk about uh, Woody Allen's... Which one did you pick originally, even though it's the same thing as the one that we've already... Well, this we can discuss this for the entire hour, if you'd like. Mm-hmm. Um, talk there's about whatever you want. The album that I've selected is a double album called The Nightclub Years... Woody Allen, The Nightclub Years, 1964 to 68. Right. Um, which, the edition that I have, which I believe I bought at the Harvard Coop in 1977 uh-huh. uh, and is what we used to call a cutout mm-hmm. because it has the little clip off yeah. the corner which means that I probably bought it for three dollars right or some insanely low price that caught that at the time was a lot of money anyway this sure. this was the edition that I have of what uh, upon my recent research is determined is actually three albums that Woody Allen released in the early 1960s yeah um, one of which called was called Woody Allen, and it's got a black and white picture of him and a series of recipes <laughs> on the back for a variety of items, including baked wild rice, biscuit tortoni, pickled cucumbers. Um, this the, this album, recorded at Mr. Kelly's in Chicago, I believe in 1964, is the is the earliest okay. uh, of the three. That's what I thought. All right. Then the second one in the compilation is called Woody Allen Volume Two. The cover of which is a uh, what we used to call four color uh, cover, uh-huh. which is very reminiscent. The art style is very reminiscent of Roy Lichtenstein, mm-hmm. um, who of course whose art was very reminiscent of just um, comic book yeah. art. The the the, the kind of um, four color printing and on the back is a series of of uh photos black and white photos of woody allen and word balloon reviews of his work um his photos from looks like he's on the tonight show here i think these are their clips from things like or photos from things like uh, uh what's new uh pussycat oh, okay okay um and then the third is a volume i don't have mm-hmm. uh which was called funny enough Woody Allen Volume Three, okay, and that that uh, uh, that includes my analysis of what's on <laughs> this album, so this double album. But um, among the things that that I found interesting in listening to this album for the first time in a very long time, um, one thing is that it it's not available on 
DVD, uh, a CD, right. or uh, or download from iTunes. Yeah. You, you can't get this. So if anybody wants to make me an offer, um, please please feel free to. Um, I, I took a look. It is available pretty readily on on eBay. Sure. Collectors are 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 offering to get rid of it at yeah. a reasonable price. But it's interesting to me that that what is considered you know a national treasure by comedy standards yeah. you simply can't get in the digital age unless you find somebody with a with i guess with a bootleg and i don't know why I'm, uh, my, my i have my suspicions uh-huh. which which are completely groundless but uh-huh. I'll, but i'll advocate on their behalf anyway which mm-hmm. is that i suspect woody allen may not want it released i thought that maybe as well yeah, uh, it's sort of the i mean although i guess gene, uh, gene wilder steve martin will still let his stuff be released he's still kind of doesn't want people thinking of him as a stand-up comic anymore no and i think you know woody allen at, at this stage in his career uh, my guess is also he doesn't make money off it <laughs> right yeah. and so he may either control it or you know this is completely groundless so i shouldn't make a any kind of statement with any knowledge but either either he doesn't want it released or whoever owns the rights to it doesn't want it released because yeah. i can't imagine that there's any i mean or there's some legal tie-up that's mm-hmm. keeping it from being uh being released but but the fact of the matter is it's you know it's out there yeah. and today being i don't know if this is something worth discussing because this is an evergreen kind of podcast but but today is record store day yes so yeah. i don't know if you've gone to your local record store today i but did my local one it's not uh, it doesn't have a lot i'm gonna need to travel oh, to get something to good go over to uh, amoeba records uh-huh, or somewhere and probably. get uh, yeah, get uh, and w- which, by the way, as record stores days go, unlike comic book day, record store day is just about buying records. Yep. It's not getting free stuff. It's not, <laughs> right. and and typically it is vinyl. And uh, although I think they are offering, um, it's simply to get you into a brick and mortar store for sure, for sure. They've actually and they've only got three that I noticed three comedy titles coming out. Oh, Obviously, what are they? I didn't. Uh, one uh, of them is a South Park uh, record uh-huh. of their San Diego song. Uh, which I still haven't heard. I know, I know that people will hate me for saying that. I still haven't heard it because I don't watch South Park that much anymore. Um, the other is a remake of uh, the Cheech and Chong song that the cross-dressing song. My guy, it's totally just left my brain. Uh-huh. Earache my eye. They oh. release a, a new a new version of Earache my eye, and the other one is a Lonely Island single. Oh, okay. So those three. That's it. And I mean, I'm, you know, the earache my eye one would be fun, but I have it on three records already. So, well, lucky you. You know, yeah, lucky me. <laughs> and then, and then the final comment I want to make about yes. the physical LP is mm-hmm. that because it's a double album, for those of you again too young to appreciate this, the albums themselves uh, are numbered. Uh, oh, that's right. Side one, mm-hmm. one, one disc is side one, and the opposite is side four, mm-hmm. and then the other one is side two, with the opposite side being side three, mm-hmm. and and the rationale for that, mm-hmm. again, for those of you who who don't have any recollection of 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 living at a time when um, LPs were played on uh, a, a a a turntable. Some of which, and and any real stereophile out there would would see, walk into your house and see this kind of device and immediately walk out because it was bad for the record. It was mm-hmm. bad for the turntable. It would have this extended stylus oh, in yeah. the in the middle, which allowed you to stack records. Mm-hmm. And then, it, 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 so so in other words. Side number one would would be on the platen, would mm-hmm. play through, and then it would drop the second album, mm-hmm. play side number two. Then you would turn them both over right. and play three and four. However, if you think about it, it's still that you still have to rearrange them yeah. 
because it would play one, two, four, three. It should have had one and three on the other side, two and four on the other side. Mm-hmm. But you know, maybe that was their idea of a joke. It could be. I, yeah. I I like that idea. What? So when did you? How early was your awareness of Woody Allen? Like when did you start? Oh well, this uh, my awareness of Woody Allen dates back to among my earliest memories mm-hmm. because um, we're I was born in nineteen. 19- the year of our Lord, 1959, mm-hmm. um, which which always gives me the advantage of having this whole extra decade that I can say I was alive during the Eisenhower administration, right. which, you know, that and, that and, and, and a quarter will... I don't know what it'll get you now. <laughs> a quarter doesn't buy it. But anyway, so I'm old enough to remember when you could say that and a, and a dime would get you a cup of coffee. Mm-hmm. So, so 1959, uh, I started... My parents would go to the drive-in. Mm-hmm. And one of the earliest recollections I have uh, is going to a drive-in movie and seeing uh, or falling asleep in the back seat while my parents were watching uh, What's New Pussycat. Awesome. Uh, okay. Written by and, and co-starring Woody Allen. So that's my earliest rec- uh, re- recollection of this really menschy kind of guy. Mm-hmm. And and I grew up in, in, in New York City. I grew up in Queens... Uh, Glendale, Queens, New York, mm-hmm. and so uh, was exposed to uh, a, a lot of the things that he parodied at that at that time sure. in both his stand up and and his movies. So so I was, you know, aware and and my my parents who I, I hesitate to describe as New York intellectuals, but who at <laughs> least had some uh, interest in you know the the the. Uh, the literature and the humor and the and the uh, uh, the movies and TV of the day sure. um, exposed me to to things, including Woody Allen. But then it really wasn't until um, uh, I, I would say high school and just seeing his movies, either CBS late night or yeah. or uh, you know. So the early, as he calls them, the earlier funny movies, including Bananas and Take the Money and Run and mm-hmm. and uh, uh, Sleeper, of course. And so then once, you know, once I was a teenager and actually going to movies, I think the first Woody Allen movie I saw in the theaters would have been Love and Death. Okay. Um, and then, of course, Annie Hall. And from then, you know, it's, it's, it's Legion that we would just routinely go to the Woody Allen movie mm-hmm. when it came out. And, and also around this time... We, you know, the early '80s, VCRs started to come into prominence, and you could actually um, rent the movies, watch the movies. Sure. Um, but up until then, and and my college era was spent late '70s, early '80s, before the day of the VCR, yeah. before the day of the DVD. And so, for us to experience Woody Allen, mm-hmm. we had to play the album, yeah. and and that's really where. I was most exposed to his work. Yeah. Do you remember the first time you sat and listened to a comedy album and who it was with? Was it family <laughs> or friends or the, it, I all right, should, should I call this a comedy album? The first album by what I would describe as a comedian mm-hmm. was a Tiny Tim album <laughs> that um 
because this would have been 1966 or 67 whenever he was on laughing and yeah. it was the height of the height of his fame <laughs> right. his only you know his 15 minutes tiny tim for those of you again who don't know was famous for his long greasy hair his ukulele and a song a novelty song called tiptoe through the tulips and and he made it on the air with the uh, 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 uh laugh in and then he was famously married on the tonight show anyway yeah. so so i <laughs> I decided to dress up as him. I must have been about eight or nine. I decided to dress up as him for Halloween. <laughs> so, uh, in order, oh, here goes. Uh, they're, 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 they're tracking you down, Jason. They've, they've found us. Um, the, the, uh, in order to to perfect my my costume, um, uh, my we drove out to the Roosevelt Mall in uh, in Long Island and bought the Tiny Tim album, which was probably a top 40 album at the time. Sure. Um, and so again, I, but that's not, I don't know that you would call that a comedy album. The, the earliest comedy album that I think I owned, again, it's not a comedy album, but, but there was this series, my father bought this series of albums in the, in the late 60s of famous radio uh, shows, uh -huh. radio, uh, uh, news, you know, everything from the Hindenburg mm -hmm. to Amos and Andy. Sure. And so there was this collection, and who knows if it if it was even a legal, it could have been a bootleg assortment mm -hmm. of famous radio plays, but it included it included a lot of Fred Allen. Oh, okay. Uh, and and so uh, that's probably the earliest comedy album per se that I could say that I listened to. Whatever this collection. Of of radio, uh, it also had the complete War of the Worlds on it. It was like a four album set, mm -hmm. and That's um, great. it was great. I wish I had that now. Now that you thank you for reminding me that this <laughs> that that exists, that I'll have mm -hmm. to track it down on eBay. Of course. Um, so. What what struck you then about this album in particular when you first, or was it just did you know what material was going to be on here when you first bought it, or were you just curious? I I don't think I did. I, you know, before I got to the Woody Allen album, I did own uh, Steve Martin's album. Okay. I I'm trying to think of what else was popular at the time. I know somebody gave me. Uh, what was the Robin Williams album? Uh, Oblivion, what a con. Oh, uh, reality, reality, what a concept. Well, yep. there you go. Mm -hmm. I think he did another one that had Oblivion in the title, I but think you might have, yeah. um, so 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 I had I had in high school several uh, albums. I have to say that that technologically speaking, mm -hmm. I did not have a turntable uh, of my own mm -hmm. uh, until probably law school uh -huh. because before then everything that i bought i bought on eight track tape right uh and so i had the steve martin album on eight track tape uh -huh. i'm trying to think of what else i would have had at that time whatever whatever the columbia record club was offering uh would have been that was that was chiefly what filled out my music and and humor uh library mm -hmm. but but so the woody allen um album this is why I think I got it as an undergraduate at Harvard, and and I I'm pretty certain that it was um, you know I got it because I was a fan of his movies, and and again we couldn't we couldn't watch the movies other than to go to uh, Revival House to of see course. them. So you know you get and you get a real flavor of the movies from I mean there's a lot of jokes that are sort of planted. Um, in the movies that that are all you know, right. that, that came from his stand-up. Mm -hmm. um, in fact, there's there's a long there's there's that monologue that he does in Annie Hall right before he marries 
uh, talks about Carol marrying Carol, the character played by Carol Kane. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he does the joke about. Uh, uh, look, I think he does the joke about looking into the soul of the student next. Why I cheated, and <laughs> yes. and then and in in college, and then his mother being um, you know, suicidal and 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 overdosing on mahjong. Yes, right, right. I mean, he does a lot of the jokes from his actual standup. Yeah, which is one of the things that makes Annie Hall such a such a a an autobiographical uh, vehicle, as sure. I suspect all of his movies in right. those days uh, more or less were. Mm-hmm. Do you so what what struck you then when you first listened to it then you put it in were you expecting this kind of shtick you can't or? expect me to remember that <laughs> you know my my, my I, I this was this was the day and time when you would would get an album like mm-hmm. this and either you play it once and I don't want to cast aspersions on any albums that I did that to but you play it <laughs> once and never listen to it again because you were deeply disappointed by it right or you'd play it over and over and over again. So I can't really recall what the the specific expectations were ahead of time. <laughs> I clearly they were met, and so sure. I, I had a a you know we would again listen to this in 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 both in a group and privately, and and it was um, sure it 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 met expectations. I remember the other albums that that I didn't have, but my roommate had were a lot of the Monty Python albums, mm-hmm. which again, I mean, the design of these things was not so much to l- listen uh, to a record, but mm-hmm. since you, since again, we didn't have DVDs or VCRs, we could, uh, VCR player, you know, VHS, the only way to watch Monty Python mm-hmm. was to wait for it to come on TV yeah. or play the album, which was, you know, the, the transcription, not transcription, but recording of the of the shows themselves sure. for the most part. So so that became you know, that that was the reason for listening to um comedy on on vinyl sure. at the time. So and I guess I did expect you to say law school, so I obviously haven't done all my research or just most of my research into everything that you've worked on and written that I've absolutely loved. So I didn't expect <clears throat> did not expect you to say law school. So when, well, I'm just when did surprises. that change? When did that change? And you oh. know what? What, uh, what writing were you doing at the time? And how early did you start working for the Lampoon? Writing for the Lampoon. So uh, I was a sophomore in, in 1978, mm-hmm. and I competed for. This is the Harvard Lampoon, not the National Lampoon. Right. Harvard Lampoon, sure. nation's oldest humor magazine, founded in 1876, and so uh, I arrived at Harvard uh, right after the the centennial, mm-hmm. and um, so a lot of the undergraduate graduates um were um and my my plan at the time was actually to go to law school uh-huh. become a lawyer um move back to where my family was living in south florida and then become a judge or a congressman or mm-hmm. or take it from there but so and among my interests barking barking dogs is that what we're distracted by at this time uh-huh. okay so that's that window uh, right ahead I'm listening. I promise you, I just don't want okay. to be distracted. That's fine. So, 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 my intention was to, um, uh, you know, build up my law school application by mm-hmm. working on a series of uh, undergraduate magazines, newspapers, okay. etc. And I, I had worked for the Harvard Independent, which is the weekly news okay. magazine. And then I thought I would compete for the for the Lampoon. And then I thought I'd try out for the Crimson and the Political Review and whatever. Mm-hmm. But the the Lampoon sort of derailed me because it became an all encompassing experience once. Uh, I, I was elected the Lampoon, and I was I was elected actually based on mostly based on my cartooning ability, which has since then completely fallen by the wayside. <laughs> uh-huh. But but so 
w once you became part of the Lampoon, which was both a, uh, when I was there, it was it was not just a magazine; it was a a social club, the, yeah. the closest thing we had to a, a fraternity yeah. uh, at 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 Harvard, and and so and and you know among the the undergraduates who with whom I, I i served on the staff of the lampoon many of them have since you know uh, gone on to uh, great fame in sure. television i was there right before the real heyday which was led by conan o'brien mm -hmm. and then greg daniels um and and just an enormous number of of tv and film writers but i was there with Mike Reese and Al Jean, of course, mm -hmm. Al runs The Simpsons right now. Right. Uh, Andy Borowitz was a year ahead of me. Uh, Max Pross and Tom Gamble were two years ahead of me, but they were they were on the staff when I was there. Uh -huh. And so, um, you know, at the time, people were interested in uh, humor as a as an avocation, not as a career. Sure. Mike Reese was among the few who I think actually we felt would go on to something like the new yorker i mean that was about okay. it there wasn't any assumption that you could work in television or be uh, right. and it was also at the time when there was a dearth of tv comedy about the only thing that was on the air uh that was a traditional sitcom that was any good was was taxi yeah and besides that it was three's company and real lowbrow right, what right. we considered at harvard really lowbrow sure, stuff sure so so my intention was to go to as i said to go to law school which i did mm -hmm. um but i had this undergraduate um, uh, experience on the Lampoon, which which was also sort of a a uh, you know we we fancied ourselves these the misfits of the campus and pranksters and and the like and mm -hmm. and um, so so I ended up going to law school, um, but as I uh, as the people uh, I was uh, affiliated with on, as an undergraduate graduated away, mm -hmm. and I spent three more years in 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 the Boston area. I went to Boston College Law School. Um, I went back. I would go back to the Lampoon for parties and other get-togethers, and and everybody I knew was an undergraduate would graduate away. And by the time I was a, a third-year law student, there was a senior there who was a, a a woman who had been a freshman uh, when I was a senior, and she had she was now a senior, and we were seeing. And we got involved, shall we say? Uh -huh. um, and we were seeing people go off and get jobs in Hollywood or in yeah. Los, in, in New York, and and working for at the time David Letterman and and uh, Saturday Night Live, and still what people Jesus. tend to do. Yeah, um, yeah. And so they were getting these jobs, but my intention was still to go to law school sure. and still to graduate and become a lawyer. And so mm -hmm. I went to South Florida, uh, as, as I say, where my parents still live, and 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 started practicing law. But this woman who I was involved with uh, came out to L.A. She decided, she gave up her uh, ideal of going to medical school to see if she could get a job in Hollywood. And she went to, uh, she came out here. She got hired almost immediately on some long-ago sitcom with Flip Wilson. Uh-huh. And, and got her agent to convince me to write a spec script. And this will really date me. But I, so I wrote a Remington Steel spec script. Awesome. And he said, if you come out here, I'll get you work. And I said, I don't believe you. You're an agent. Right. And he right. said, no, really, I will. And and I figured, well, if he can, you know, if he can say it twice, then <laughs> there must be some truth to it. Uh -huh. So I went to the senior partner of my law firm. And this is, I've been there for maybe, you know, 18 months, less than two years. Mm -hmm. And I said to the senior partner, um, what would you think if I went, took a three-month sabbatical and went out to Hollywood to, to try to write for television? 
and I, I covered my face because I didn't know what he was going to throw at me. <laughs> and he said, uh, he said, he said, son, when I was your age, I could have pitched for the Detroit Tigers, and I turned them down, and uh, I've regretted it ever since. So you go out there and you see if you can make it in Hollywood. So I did, and I'm now in the, at the 26th year of that three-month sabbatical, and I don't suspect that I'm going back. But, but so you know, so I came out here, and I ended up my. So here's here's a, a comedy on vinyl story. I so I came out and was writing gold spec Golden Girls and spec Cheers awesome. and you know the stuff that you wrote sure. in 1986. Mm-hmm. But then the agent called and he said, so they want to start this new thing called the Fox Network. Rupert Murdoch wants to start his his own television network. And at the time, it was ABC, NBC, CBS. Yep. And so he wanted to start Fox, and he was going to start it by luring Joan Rivers away from The Tonight Show. Oh, right. yeah. Joan had been the, the, the um, uh, regular uh, guest host on The Tonight Show mm-hmm. for John, with Johnny Carson. And so he said, can you write for Joan Rivers? And I said... I don't know. <laughs> so I did what you could do in those days, which is I went to Tower Records mm-hmm. and I bought a Joan Rivers' album, mm-hmm. which I can't remember even the name is of. Is it the next to last it. Joan Rivers' album? No, no. no it's the one, one that has her wearing a fur coat oh, and, and okay. off her shoulder. And, and Yeah, anyway, so so I so I bought that. It was all Heidi Abramowitz jokes and, uh-huh. and it was what she was... Yeah she was doing at the time and so so i started you know i wrote these one and two line jokes mm-hmm. but, the, but the problem was i wrote them on a uh, and by the way the woman who had told me to come out we were now steady again and and she, i helped her buy this three thousand uh, dollar desktop computer that's about the size of a you know a a, a, a Hyundai, or, uh-huh. or you know, the size of a smart car, right? Yeah. Now. And so, and it has about as much memory, probably, as your, you know, your watch. Yeah. And so, so I was using WordPerfect 1.0 on Damn. these ten-inch yes. floppy drives yeah. that we used at the law firm. And uh-huh. so I wrote these jokes, and we had a Daisy wheel printer, and I, and I, and I couldn't turn off the right justification. I didn't know what what code did that. And mm-hmm. So I printed out these one and two line jokes that were perfectly justified left and right. And I handed them in, and the head writer was a sweet, dear man named named Hank Bradford, who would, he used to be Johnny Carson's head writer. He went back to the days of Sid Caesar wow. and your show of shows. Wow. And this is a guy who had never written on anything other than a uh, you know, manual typewriter. Sure. And he gets these jokes, and he calls me up, and he says, these are the best typed jokes I've ever seen, because they're so perfectly justified. <laughs> and he said, and some of them are kind of funny, too. So anyway, so he hired me. Uh-huh. On the on the late show with Joan Rivers, live television, um, the day that we premiered, October sixth or seventh, nineteen eighty six, I was as far away from Rupert Murdoch as I am from you right now, Man. and that's as close as I can get now because of the injunction. <laughs> uh, the, 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 but so he uh, and and there it was Fox, FBC appeared on TV. Joan lasted I don't know maybe six seven months. Yeah. And being the first rat off the sinking ship, I submitted material to The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. And Johnny was so thrilled, I think, to get material from somebody who, because he, he really hated Joan. I mean, to his point, dying yeah, right, day, right. He, he resented how she handled the departure. Yeah. And so um, so he hired me. I went to work at The, at the Tonight Show. I had two, two stays there. Uh-huh. Um, that was another early album that I had. Johnny put out this album... That was like the you know clips from the Tonight Show. Yes. It was a weird collection. I have that at the record shop next to where I work. I wanted to get that. Casablanca Records, mm-hmm. and it was a it's a compilation of both his um, 
you know, mono, contemporary monologue jokes from the early '70s. Mm-hmm. You know, Godfather jokes and <laughs> things like that, and 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 also Ella Fitzgerald singing, awesome. and and you know, clips of of him interviewing Richard Nixon and interviewing, you know, uh, and, and of course the famous clip of Ed Ames throwing the tomahawk, completely <laughs> visual. They couldn't put that there. Right. So there's this other Ed Ames bit that he did, which ha- which was a which was another vaguely famous bit now that i you know it's all lost to history and my my failing memory but and so they and and they had the famous dragnet parody with uh-huh. with uh um jack webb and so they, that was on this other two record set that i think i i bought pretty early in my record buying days but anyway so i went to work for johnny and which was one of your great tv writing experiences because you never had to explain you know what the what the show was yeah. who was on it when it was on you know it's even with the simpsons i've had to people say oh yeah i've heard of that cartoon show <laughs> but the tonight show with johnny carson everybody knew what it was and yeah. so that was um certainly one of the highlights of of my career and all the result of buying joan rivers album that's pretty awesome that's yeah. pretty great do you, do you, can you feel in your own writing specific influences i mean going back to maybe this album or other early albums that you listened to or is it just too too ethereal and it's just not the thing that i you know and i thought about this because i knew you were going to ask this jason <laughs> but i actually think that that this album had more influence on my day-to-day <laughs> living uh-huh. and and rapport and the way I talk to women or the way I talk to uh, you know the, just the, just the way your cocktail party chatter mm-hmm. um, is was more influenced by this album than I think my actual writing okay. and that and that the um, because I spent my early days writing variety. You know, and and really learning the craft of writing, you know, a fifteen-word to two-sentence joke yeah. is, and it is something of a craft that I don't know is really. I don't think it's taught per se because it's got right. such a marketplace, as opposed to screenwriting and 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 uh, you know sitcom writing, sure. which I think is is taught. The, the the there were cadences in 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 Woody Allen's. See, Woody Allen's and this album in particular is more about. He tells sort of stories than than the one line jokes yeah. of a Rodney Dangerfield yeah. album, which mm-hmm. was another one that I was very heavily heavily uh, heavily played at least. Okay, that I think that kind of album and those that kind of material was much more influential on how um, you know how I learned to write comedy. Okay, the Woody Allen. Uh, this was simply. Entertainment mm-hmm. and and lifestyle influence okay. more than more than work influence. I would say that's pretty interesting. I mean, you you do come from a background that fewer people are probably coming from, which is pretty pure joke writing. I don't think people yeah. know that as much anymore as a skill. Maybe I could be wrong. It's interesting. I mean, most of the it, it, ac- ac- across the twenty five years or so that I've been in the business. Sitcom writing and sitcom writers tended to come from 
from the variety world and and okay. it, you go back to again the early days of of TV the days of Sid Caesar Woody Allen himself Mel Brooks sure. I mean the names you've you've heard of um Dick Cavett was an early tonight show writer oh, right. you know guys that have since sort of fallen out of fame but at least or some of the giants of the industry like Ed Weinberger mm-hmm. and David Lloyd the, these are these were the classic television sitcom writers who created Mary Tyler Moore and yeah. And and shows like Taxi, J- J- James L. Brooks. Mm-hmm. I mean, th- these guys came out of variety writing, and that's where you started. And the reason you started there, and a lot of my colleagues did too, because it was they were they were jobs on uh, you know Letterman, SCTV, mm-hmm. Saturday Night Live. These were jobs where you needed. 12 15 writers yeah. because it was it was a lot of material being cranked out night after night in the case of the late night shows and and but the goal was you know you keep this job it was low paying it was young writers and mm-hmm. it was a revolving door i mean there was over the course of the 30 years that johnny carson was on the tonight show there were 75 of us yeah who you know many of whom were let go after 13 weeks and uh-huh. many of whom stayed there for 20 years but now i think it's a much different environment that if you get get a job on the daily show or 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 letterman or 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 Len or, Kim or conan anybody any of these guys mm-hmm. you tend to stay there and the guys that are there are there for a long time yeah whereas in my day the idea was you'd stop by for a cup of coffee 13 weeks maybe 26 mm-hmm. and then you'd end up trying to get a sh- trying to get a job on a sitcom yeah and so then you would have to learn the whole three-act structure yeah. you'd have to learn the the you know the the, the 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 how to put a button at the end of the scene how right. to do act break jokes i mean all that stuff which you were not taught and you didn't have to care about yeah. when you were working in in variety the other big difference between variety writing and 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 sitcom writing is variety it is largely every man and woman for himself mm-hmm. you're in a, a you very rarely would work as a group um that was one of the things that changed in the in the Johnny's final days was that he would actually get us together and we would meet with him at his house in 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 Malibu, which was very well, not technically the house. We would meet in the in the uh, tennis complex next to the house. Uh, well, uh, we didn't, yeah, because and 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 uh, you know we would talk about the week's show and yeah. the the and in those days, of course, he was down to three days a week, forty oh, right, weeks a year. Right. So it was a, and it was so routine. We would go in and and you know the the he would be he would have a black. Uh, felt on a table, and he'd be with a video camera practicing hand magic, and in front Holy of cow. watching himself do it. And and we would come in, and we'd say, "Okay, we're going to do a Karnak, or we're going to do a desk bit about Judge Bork, and whatever." <laughs> and 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 then he would say, "So, do you guys watch the Bolivian beauty pageant that was on?" And we'd say, "No, no," because we didn't have these big satellite dishes right. in our backyard the way he did. And and he was, "Well, let me t- I'll tell you about." It. And he would hold court, and that that was. My point is just that we—that was the only time we would really work together. Yeah. Certainly with him. Nowadays, uh, I think that there's more of that with shows like The Daily Show and mm-hmm. and, and uh, Colbert. But but um, but with a sitcom, you are definitely in a room with other writers constantly, um, except when you're out on script. And uh-huh. so there's there's a lot more collaboration involved in every single line in every single script. And that I didn't really that I didn't get into that environment until I went to work in animation. Yeah. Um, when Mike Reese and Al Jean hired me on the Critic in uh, 1994, and, th- and that that's when you have to learn this whole different uh, work ethic. 
Did you like that at first? How difficult was that for you? Well, uh, you know, my attitude at the time was, and probably still is, well, I'm only doing this for a couple of years, and then <laughs> right. I'm going to go back to being a lawyer uh -huh. until this gravy train runs out. Yeah. And, and you know, when, when, when Carson retired, and actually he... I was the last of the 75 writers to be let go from The Tonight Show. Wow. And so with about a year left, he let me go, and then he retired. And, of course, I could say, well, I, he couldn't do it without me. But, <laughs> but then, but then uh, you know, my, my thought was, and this was, this was the early 90s, this was about 91, 92, when mm -hmm. everybody was selling, you know, Sh Shane Black sold the million-dollar script, and everybody else was following yeah. suit and said, oh, all right, I'll write, I'll write movies. And, I'll, and I made a short film that was a, a parody of the Civil War. Uh, the Ken Burns Civil War documentary, oh, yeah. Yeah. and and that, you know, got into a lot of festivals, and but but and so I figured I would write screenplays, mm -hmm. and I, I wrote them. Nobody bought them, and so as a result, when uh, uh, Mike and Al were on The Simpsons, they had run The Simpsons for two years, and again, the theory in those days was you work on a show for a couple of years, and then you get hired, big development deal, and you get your own show on the air. And and uh, you become you know the next Jerry Seinfeld or you become the next right. uh, Ed Weinberg or David Lloyd. But mm -hmm. but nowadays it's all you once you get on The Simpsons you're there for twenty twenty five years. Right. Right. And of course that was ended up being my experience with Futurama. But with with the critic it was a case of going to work with not only Mike Reese and Al Jean who I'd gone to school with but with uh, Ken Keeler who was another writer that that. Went was on the lampoon with me a few years younger than me. Uh -huh. Ended up uh, getting his PhD in electro electrical engineering. Uh, it got two MAs, one from from I think uh, Stanford, another one from Harvard. Got his PhD from Harvard and went to work for the government or for AT and T doing doing uh, radar and and uh, submarine research. Holy crap! And then decided, well, let's submit some material to Letterman and going <laughs> going to work there. Jesus. So 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 that was you know. So then he gets hired on the critic, comes out to L.A. Mm -hmm. uh, another guy named Steve Tompkins who was also an undergraduate at Harvard, a little later than me. And then they hired this guy named Tom Brady who they liked his material. It wasn't until about a month into the production of The Critic that we learned, oh, he had also gone to Harvard. <laughs> so, but we had, and now he's gone on to be a, a, a successful film director. But mm. So our, our not the Tom Brady who was a football player. This is a different Tom Brady. Anyway, so, so there we were. We're working on doing this animated show. And, you know, Mike and Al, after four years on The, on the Simpsons, thought, well, this is... You know, we got John Lovitz, who was pretty hot sure. commodity at the time. Sure. Uh, and and uh, you know, we were gonna. This was gonna be the big next big thing, mm -hmm. and you know, it was not. Although we we, we certainly enjoyed the shows. We had a lot of fun doing movie the movie parodies, oh, God. and and you know, this was <laughs> and and we had great talent. The actors on the show, people we've worked with a lot since then, including maurice lamarche and and uh sure. and so 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 anyway so that lasted first on abc then on fox right. and uh and then it it sort of evaporated right. um then after that i you know i continued to think well all right that's going to be it i'm going to go back to being a lawyer and i ended up getting hired by dick blasucci who was a longtime sctv writer uh -huh. and a guy i idolized because uh, of the uh, because of that show, mm -hmm. he hired me to work for the Muppets, and uh, right. that was an early oh, influence. That was a great I show said, too. Thank you. Oh. This was Muppets Tonight, which is a show that's not on DVD. Nobody's. That's right. uh, it, God it, dang it! It was one of those things where I think Disney 
was trying to buy the Muppets at the time. Oh, yeah. Jim Henson died, mm-hmm. and so they said, eh, "We're not as interested." Right. And and you know, it was it was during a period where you couldn't. Network television was really moving away from doing anything that was family oriented because of the rise of Nickelodeon and yep. the rise of the Disney Channel, and so you didn't you didn't do family programming in bro- sure. and broadcast. And so we ended up getting stuck at 7 o'clock on Sunday nights. And Mm -hmm. so we did the first season of that show for ABC and a second season for the Disney Channel. Mm -hmm. And we ended up winning an Emmy because of uh, an episode we did with Prince, which was extraordinary. And and so I spent two years on that, uh, Mm -hmm. which which was more variety than sitcom, although it was... It still had the kind of story, yeah. and then after that, I got I, I we went to work on Futurama, and that's been a twelve year up and down roller coaster uh, ever ever since. An insane one. Uh, I mean, just all the the. But uh, so as far as uh, starting out, I guess as a joke writer, uh, and I guess that that's really simplifying it. But do you are there other influences that you feel sort of. Or, or 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 not? I mean, are there other ones that you can tell? I mean, because yeah. especially writing on the critic and Futurama, you're writing on two very two shows that that get to comment and play with pop culture so much. Yeah, I mean, what what I what I found in my career um, before I learned to even to do a a joke, mm-hmm. I think I learned to do satire. Okay, and that came from having uh uh read every issue of mad magazine that i could get my hands on between the time i was uh you know about 10 until uh today Uh in fact i i i have every every issue of mad going back i've gone back and bought all the the early ones so i have a yes i have a complete mad magazine collection for what that's worth thanks to you know, I've now gone to I've gone to twenty five of the last twenty six Comic Cons, uh-huh. and it took me the first eight or nine to get all the old wow. the old Mads, which of all you know any any stock my stock portfolio my land for all of it pales in comparison to the fact that I bought Mad magazines when you Mad comic books when you could yeah. back in the uh, in the early nineties, oh. and they're now astronomically priced. That's but, so good. Yeah, so 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 Mad was an early influence. Uh, for me, mm-hmm. and then also the National Lampoon. When, when we were undergraduates at, at on the on the Harvard Lampoon, um, there was a connection to what we called Nat Lamp. Mm-hmm. Um, Animal House had just come out, right. and there was actually this tie. The National Lampoon had been founded by Henry Beard, Doug Kenny, and Rob Hoffman, who were Harvard Lampoon alums mm-hmm. who didn't want the 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 dream to end, as yeah. it were. Yeah. And so they actually there was a there was this deal where because they they claimed the word lampoon was trademarked or copywritten, so they had a deal that we would get a percentage of whatever National Lampoon right. made. And right. so with Animal House they made a lot of money, yeah. and so we did all right. And so, 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 Nat Lamp, the magazine, and you know those early Nat Lamp movies, including Animal House and Vacation, mm-hmm. were influential, and also their albums. Mm-hmm. And the the one in particular of which I was most fond was the Greatest Hits album. Yeah, that had um, you know it had a combination of, of sketches. And and parody songs mm-hmm. and you know stuff by Tony Hendra the the the, the remarkable John Lennon parody mm-hmm. um, that's on there and and so that became 
sort of the, what taught us how to write sketches. And we actually, and I brought it with me since I thought you might be interested in it. Mm -hmm. This was the issue of the Harvard Lampoon, the media number from 1979 or 80 that Al Jean edited, where we actually made our own little little oh, uh, album. It was an album. It's about, it's about 12 minutes of material. That's and, so good. And we went to this company in Florida mm -hmm. called Evatone, and for the price of, I think it ended up being about 12 pages of the magazine uh -huh. that we had to sacrifice, they made 5,000 copies of this little floppy yellow plastic uh, uh, single, basically, so called great. The Harvard Lampoon Greatest Hits, April 21st, 1980 to April 28th, 1980. Uh -huh. And it, it's very innocent, and it's very early stuff by Andy Borowitz uh -huh. and... Uh, um, Paul Redford, who now runs the the uh, Aaron Sorkin show, yeah. uh, and was on news radio. I uh, was on uh, West Wing for years. Uh -huh. What's the Aaron Sorkin show called? West? Uh, yeah, West Wing. New, no, but oh, news. Oh, oh, the news oh room. sports night. Oh, newsroom. New, the, new the new one. The one okay, that's sorry. Not <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Name and, every and, show. And, and Mike and Al are, are, worked on it, mm -hmm. and and Ken Keeler. And so anyway, it's it's um, something you can you can choose to listen to at your leisure um, because it's certainly not something that's available anywhere else yeah. than here in this room. That actually reminds me of, I know there's at least one Mad Magazine that had the It's a Gas single yes, in it. Yes, Did and, you have those? And the, I did, and the extent, there was, there was a, they acted out the All in the Family parody. Really? Yes, oh they, got, they got, they got, uh, which I believe was written by Arnie Kogan, uh -huh. who was a famous sitcom writer whose son Jay Kogan was mm. a Simpsons writer yep. for for years and has a show on Nick right now. But th they they yes they recreated that All in the Family parody and acted it out, and that I think they also released on That's one of these so cool. floppy things. Yeah, you used to get these things in the mail. It mm -hmm. was a form of advertising in, in the uh, in the early. Uh, sixties uh, and seventies. It was a brief period where it was affordable to make these things, mm -hmm. but not so affordable that that you know you were inundated with them. So it was right. still a rare and and curious thing to to do. So. I've been looking to see if any companies still do it because I know that I got one on an Alf toy in the eighties from Burger King. They they, they yes, all came that with singles on right. those too. Um, <laughs> they're just fascinating to me because obviously the quality's not great. You have to put a penny on each corner just to make it work. Yeah, no, and in <laughs> fact, when I I tried to digitize it, mm -hmm. and my turntable would only go so far into it, it uh -huh. cut the last maybe 15 seconds off oh, it wouldn't funny. it kept re returning and not allowing me to to digitize the last 15 seconds oh. which in, which includes sadly this this uh this impression of marlon brando that i did at the time <laughs> which uh i don't i don't want to try to do right now that's so fine i won't, ask, I won't to, ask you to do thank that thank you very much <laughs> did so when it, do you still collect vinyl at all, or is it? I mean, uh, it doesn't sound collector. I mean, I know you bought what you wanted, but yeah, no. I mean, I, I in fact intend to go out to Amoeba today and get this new Bob Dylan wigwam oh, yeah. single that's mm -hmm. been released. Um, I, I, I'm selective. I don't, you know, mm -hmm. I don't. I'm not trying to 
fill any any gaps at this point yeah. but but i will uh, you know i'll buy i'll buy it when i mean there's there's a warren zevon album that yeah. uh is is not available on on dvd and so mm. i've still got the vinyl and that's sure. the only way to play it and so i do there are so many albums i've got obviously i i've started cataloging as you, as you can see last night yes yeah, so for those of you of who them. can't see this room which is all of you it's actually impressive just how full of junk it is <laughs> it's both toys and and vinyl and 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 a, is that kirk douglas sitting where i'm sitting now no that oh, that's okay. gorvidal that's, oh, that's gorvidal sorry yes. <laughs> close well, enough my, well, no one of them's in the ground and the other one isn't <laughs> that is true that is true There's, oh that's from your your vice presidential yeah documentary yeah that's stored sort of still in process sort of movie there's gene wilder up there though i need to put gene wilder oh, on this wall okay that, that's what i need to do there's a lot of stuff in here it's a little distracting yes for I both of you that. listening this is uh, <laughs> you you really enjoy this this room there's a lot of stuff. There's a lot of albums. That, that, this wall is very new. This used to be an all. This is one big blazing saddles poster at one point, but I ah, I switched okay. it out because it was apparently full of dart holes from whoever owned it previously. Um, so uh, and now I just distracted myself from asking you whatever the next question was going to be, but that's okay. Um, so, <clears throat> pardon me. So you 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 you're very selective about what you collect. Do you miss? sitting around and listening to an album with people because i mean now i know at one point this is before your time but there were party albums sure uh, you know um but then you know 70s and 80s in college i would imagine there would have to have been the equivalent a lot of getting albums to get stoned to and a lot of albums to just hang out to yeah i mean b believe it or not my crowd was not a particular stoner crowd <laughs> uh and so that wasn't what we did mm -hmm. but um you know, I've as recently as the last five years, I, a close friend gave me a Pig Meat Markham album, uh -huh. which uh, I have yet to listen to <laughs> as it happens. But no, in fact, my my wife went to work for Red. Oh, by the way, that woman that I dated ended up I I married her, and we've been married for twenty three years now. So so that actually worked out pretty well too. But and she went she she worked for Red Fox for Whoa. a few years. Yeah, she worked for Flip Wilson, but not on the Flip Wilson show. Red Fox, but not on Stanford and Stanford Holy Son. Shit. Not uh, she worked for uh, uh, Robert Guillaume, but not on Benson. Oh my God, uh, Sherman Hemsley, but not on the Jefferson. Holy so crap. so she was always there for, for these great. But anyway, so she bought she bought the Red Fox party albums, uh -huh. which are about as filthy oh, yeah. as 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 could be mm -hmm. you know also uh richard pryor uh was uh, was another you know series of albums that we had sure. that i didn't have but friends did mm -hmm. we also listened a lot to the bill cosby albums um and 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 those where this is where we would listen to them uh-huh long drives okay because again we had them on eight track sure, sure and so you could plug them in and and as you're driving you would listen to them in lieu of of music yeah and that and that became that was sort of the the uh um the soundtrack of you know these 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 uh long drives that we had to make between Again, summers in in Southwest Florida. If you wanted to do anything, you'd drive from Fort Myers to Tampa or to Miami, mm -hmm. and so you'd have these these uh, those those drives were often filled with uh, uh, with with listening to comedy. That's pretty great. I've heard that a couple times. With you know, I normally do think of music, but I'll, I've heard quite a few people who just fill their fill the air with that, and I think it's a little more. 
but no, I, I, just, I distinctly remember hearing, there was a Bill Cosby album where he had a routine talking about driving and mm-hmm. talking about, thank God they put those, those uh, reflectors in the road because otherwise, you know, you wouldn't you wouldn't know you were leaving the lane and driving into oncoming traffic <laughs> if you didn't if you didn't hit the hit those little bumps in the road that they put there as reflectors and and that was happening to us at the time right. that we were listening to it so it actually had a visceral impact on us and it, you know there there are things I guess you don't get like that anymore um, but I, I I don't want this to be a big nostalgia fest I I do that sometimes too late the audience doesn't love it when I do that I don't oh. think um, but I don't know. What do you have a favorite bit? One particular bit off of this album, off the Woody Allen album? Oh, the Moose, the Moose yes. album by far okay. is okay. Yeah, is the is the standout, mine. and and <laughs> again because you know what he does on this album more so than 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 tell jokes is tell these stories yeah. that are that are just really pitch perfect when it comes to both describing. You know, it's a, it's a scene with a with a moose, and and so that's which is a funny word, mm-hmm. a funny looking creature mm-hmm. in a in a bizarre and amusing setting, and then of course he throws in all the the business about about uh, uh, the 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 the, the, uh, the other couple dressed as 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 the uh, as the moose, and and you know there's all kinds of of of. Uh, um, uh, what, what we would call the classic vaudeville Jewish humor that that he was just absolutely phenomenal with, yeah. at, at, you know, and he was he was doing jokes that other people, you know, couldn't or wouldn't do, right. and 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 just hitting them perfectly. That one and the and the uh, of course the bullet, the the bullet, uh, yes. the Bible, yeah, uh, which. You know, you could just uh, you could it, so it, it's maybe forty words, fifty mm-hmm. words that 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 again he just he just nails and and uh, but but the, the 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 line the moose mingled did very well <laughs> scored was you could just say that and see you're laughing without without uh, without hearing the whole story. Can you think of? Any points specifically when you've written, say, on like the critic or Futurama, where any Woody Allen is crept through your brain while you're writing? Well, or is it just we, we, you know, the Woody, the critic had Woody Allen. That is uh, true. Love it's like doing his impression yeah. of Woody Allen, which <laughs> was, uh, and and at the time, Woody Allen was going through a lot of stuff yes. with <laughs> with Mia Farrow and Sunyi, and his personal life mm-hmm. was coming to uh, to the fore. So we we would. You know, the, both 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 on the critic and on on the Simpsons, the Woody Allen would himself would creep into the uh, in, into the environs. But um, you know, I, I again, I think most of what I can take credit for in my career um, was was the kind of parody stuff yeah. that Woody Allen really moved away from yeah. after you know. T- I mean, t- take the money and run. Um, you know, long before Spinal Tap, long before you know the the the, the uh, Christopher Guest movies. I mean, yeah. this is a, a mockumentary. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a fake. Uh, the, the whole film, from start to finish, never wavers from it being uh, a, 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 a parody. Sure. Um, and so when I when I when I made my Civil War uh, documentary I, a parody, um, I remember getting. Um, a, a lot of comparisons to take the money and run, which I considered awesome. high praise, yes, and that of was, course. you know, yeah, no, I mean, even again, they chose to do that rather than to compare it to say something like, like Spinal Tap, but yeah. but it it, it um, 
And so, whereas that's sort of what I've, that's the closest I, I can say that I come to Woody Allen's sense of humor. Sure. Because I, I don't think of myself as particularly uh, neurotic mm-hmm. or, or doing the kinds of, of I mean, I, I like to think of my humor as, as smart, mm-hmm. but on a show like Futurama, where, you know, I had my JD, there were three PhDs, eight people with master's degrees. I mean, I, I was the dummy in that room <laughs> to a certain extent. And so, yeah. so there, was, there was a lot of math and science humor and, and you know, really smart, sophisticated uh, stuff sure. and and so to to put in a a you know the the kind of Woody Allen neurotic self conscious material we didn't do that so much I think yeah. David X Cohen our showrunner on on for the entirety of Futurama I don't think he disliked Woody Allen but I, I just don't think that was his style of humor I also sure. don't think Matt Groening is as into um, that kind of material he could, might prove me wrong and say he loves Woody Allen but it's not. It's it. not the, not where it, it wasn't the target that we were going for largely. That makes sense. Um, I always like to ask if you're going to recommend this album to somebody who's never heard Woody Allen before, doesn't know who Woody, a young person per se. What would you say to get them to listen to it? Well, you know, again, it's it's not, uh, it's not of this era, for and sure. so but. What's what's fascinating is that, and I've done this with my own children who are now teenagers. I I tried to sit them down early and get them to watch Buster Keaton movies and and Marx Brothers movies yeah. and and Woody Allen movies and and I you know I never really had the opportunity because we didn't have a turntable, yeah. so I couldn't play the albums. But um, uh, but interestingly, the Woody Allen movies were the ones that they were much more interested in than either Keaton or or um, uh, or, or the Marx Brothers. Uh-huh. And I think partially because they're in color. Most sure. of them are, are in color. But, but um, the, the thing, I mean, it's an interesting document of, of not only um, uh, a, a guy whose career has spanned Six decades, yeah. and he's not. I mean, this is a guy who who's won an Oscar in his in his forties and in his seventies. So yeah. I mean, he's just this. You know, there's no, nobody like that, with the possible exception maybe Billy Wilder in mm-hmm. the canon of filmmaking. But sure. but here here's an opportunity to hear. Um, you know, it's it's like saying, okay, here, here's here's the early drafts of of the Great Gatsby, or yeah. here's you know here's what Lincoln wrote. This is the Gettysburg Address that he wrote before he wrote on the envelope. Yeah. I mean, it's just this early stuff that that uh, of an American icon, yeah. and and it's and it's still pretty well polished sure. considering he's he's. Um, uh, Young mm-hmm. and and doing kind of innocent material and stuff that that astonishingly hasn't dated. I mean, there yeah. there oh, there's a joke about is it Lorna Luff? No, who is it? It's 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 Picky Lee or it's somebody mm-hmm. who who I can't even remember who the, the name that he 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 alludes to and and I don't even know who it is and I can't even remember. But yeah. there are really there are some dated jokes in there and he's you know but he's talking about stuff that's that's really really evergreen and what fifty years later I mean this album yeah. is fifty year or the the content in this album is now fifty years old and and it's still still funny yeah the moose is still funny it's great it's great 
and <laughs> sorry so the tag the button to that whole thing the clubs restricted is one of my oh favorite and the clubs restricted <laughs> the jokes on them because the club is restricted that's right that's right one of my favorite things ever um thank you so much for doing this i really appreciate it uh is there anything you want to plug uh Oh, well, yes, of course. Please. New episodes of Futurama begin uh, June 19th at awesome. 10 o'clock on Comedy Central. Um, this is, where are we? This is April of 2013, so <laughs> depending on when you listen. But who knows? New episodes of Futurama appear at any given time and any given place. So true. I can't, uh, I, I'll just, I'll, let's just say there will be new episodes of Futurama sometime, <laughs> somewhere. Look for them and watch them. And uh, thank you. Uh, do you, uh, your Civil War film, is there any way to see that anywhere? You know, because, I, uh, no, uh, not right now, at least, because it has music that I paid mm-hmm. for, I paid the rights for, but not for internet digital release, so okay. I just don't want the Harry Fox agency coming after me, but someday I'll put it up on, on either YouTube or or somewhere but but no it's not uh I, i'll let you have a copy and if it slips out into the well, i don't want it to slip out See, into the world you can blame me and then i'll be the one yeah, who's totally, no, then, totally responsible for it yeah but i want my i want royalties for it uh, understandable yeah. uh, what about your figurines if you, you oh know, of course yes. well my figurines yes well that. that's uh my sidelight is making little figurines of presidents and supreme court justices and they're at verone.com if anyone cares to to take a look i'm i'm actually right in the middle of trying to find a domestic factory that will make them the the i i just have this sense that people don't want their presidents and justices made by made in china mm, mm-hmm. so and mm-hmm. and up and, and so the the fact is the the person who made the first batch retired and oh. so now i'm looking for a new molding and casting um facility well they're so. incredibly cool looking and i i, I, I oh, love thanks. the style of them obviously because they're based off of the marx figurines right? they go back to the the early 60s or late 50s lewis marx the king of of toys the mm-hmm. man who kept uh, Christmas alive during World War II when mm-hmm. Congress wanted to shut it down, and uh, no, these were these were figurines that I had as a kid, and then when they went out of business and Nixon was the last president that he made, that would not stand. No, and so I no. so I decided to teach myself molding and casting and sculpting and made all the presidents since Nixon, and I made a set for myself. Of course, I put it up on eBay. And it sold for seven hundred dollars. So I said, crap. "Oh, let's make more of these." Holy cow! And yeah, but uh, but it is a it, it's very personal. Each one is numbered. Each one is initialed by me. So uh, until until I find some factory in in uh, uh, they used to be made in 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 West Virginia in a u- fully unionized factory in oh. I think Glencoe, West Virginia, is where the Marks Toy Factory was. Mm-hmm. And uh, then by the early '60s, they shipped them off to Hong Kong. But ah. But uh, it's still, I'm, we're going to try to make them domestically and, and see if uh, see if people will buy them. That's awesome. Thank you again. This has been a My lot of My pleasure. Fun. Oh, good. Thank you guys for listening, and as always, have a good thing. Comedy on Vinyl is a production of Stolen Dress Entertainment. It is produced by Mike Warden and is hosted and edited by Jason Klom. Visit StolenDress.com to listen to our other podcasts, read our blogs, read our tweets, watch our videos, and read our books. Please subscribe on iTunes, rate us highly, and write your reviews. You can follow us on Facebook.com slash Comedy on Vinyl and Twitter at Comedy on Vinyl. No, no, no,
on the spot. She found a pair of overalls at the bottom of the pot. Him rolling, he got ripping mad. His eyes were bulging out. He jumped upon the piano and loudly he did shout. Who threw the overalls in Mrs. Murphy's chowder? Nobody spoke, so he shouted out.